I want to start by showing you our primary verse today for our study. It's from Micah 6.8. Let's say it together. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? If you head out that way downstairs to the commons for the fellowship time and look at the wall right behind our sound booth, you'll actually see a a three-picture mural that captures those three things that the Lord requires of his people. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. In fact, I was wondering as I was getting the sermon ready if anybody has the website, actjustlylovemercywalkhumbly.org. It'd be a great website for a church. Unlike a website of a church that is more infamous for their righteous hatred, um, this is going to be offensive. Their website is godhatesfags.org. You may have heard of them in the news. It's Westboro Baptist Church of Kansas. This is a hateful church. They first came to prominence, even though they'd been around since the 1950s, in 1998, when they chose to picket the funeral of a young man who had been a victim of a hate crime. He'd been beaten to death simply because of his sexual orientation. And in picketing, what they were really doing was supporting the murderers. The world heard about them. You probably should think of yourself as needing a wake-up call as a church when even the KKK puts pictures on their website of members of the KKK giving the finger to members of the Westboro Baptist Church of Kansas. That ought to say something to you, that something's a little off. And (laughs) their hypocrisy was revealed to the world when Steve Jobs passed, and they announced a plan to picket his funeral. The daughter of the founder who posted that notice did it with an iPhone. (laughs) I would love to sit them down and say, what do you think this verse means? In their twisted sense, I think they probably have this act justly part with a lot of hatred mixed in. I think they've forgotten that all the Old Testament is summarized by Jesus in the context of love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor even the one that you are most alienated from and so apart from, love that neighbor as you love yourself. I think that there's something missing there. And I'll tell you what they're missing is that underlined phrase, they've forgotten God's mercy. And in order to go there, you've got to be pretty humble. I think that's what Micah 6.8 is talking about. Now, when you bring up a church like that who is not a church, I want to make very clear, The founder of Westboro Baptist Church was not a Christian in any way that I think Christian should be defined. And I think that when he finally died and stood before God, the first two words out of his mouth were, oh crap. (laughs) When when a church like that shows such little mercy, it can become a smokescreen to the rest of us. And we may miss our own struggle with showing mercy. You see, mercy is part of God's character. It comes natural to him. In the book of Exodus, when Moses has this amazing encounter with God that required that he show his mercy to Israel, if you don't know the story, Google the golden calf event, and you'll read all about it. Israel 
failed pretty miserably. And, and uh, God, after a discussion with Moses, recommitted himself to being merciful. And Moses says to him, God, would you show me your glory? Can we get back to the worship now? And he said to him, well, tomorrow I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you in a cleft of a rock, and God passes before him. But what matters is what God says. And you know the first thing he talks about? It's his compassion and his loving kindness. That's the same Hebrew word for mercy, loving kindness. Mercy is natural to God's character, but it is not natural to ours. In fact, the book of Romans, when it describes our fallen nature in a long list of things, at the end of that list is, they are without mercy. It doesn't come natural to us to do what it comes natural to God to do, yet we are his representatives on earth. And that's why mercy has to become a holy habit. We have to condition ourselves through the Holy Spirit and discipleship to live in such a way that we are always acting mercifully. Because if we're not developing that habit, we may step in and out of mercy, but we will mostly do what we're prone to do, and that's uh, pursue our own interests. And when that is true, even our worship of him is not adequate for God. And we're going to see that tonight in Micah chapter 6. So I invite you to turn there with me. This passage has four movements to it. I'm going to read the whole thing to begin with. Verse 1 through verse 8. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered? Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord, you may ask, and, and bow before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of olive oil shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what is it that the Lord requires of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. This passage opens up with an indictment that God is making towards his people. When he calls to the mountains and the heavens to bear witness, he's drawing all of creation into this courtroom in which he is going to indict his own people. That's how epic this issue is. Now, we can never talk too much about God's love and compassion, but we can overplay it when we fail to also remember his holiness and his righteousness. If you were to 
study who God is, how he's revealed in Scripture. We call that theology. Theo, that's God. Ology is the study of. You could take all the different characteristics of God and break them down into two overarching categories. You've, you've heard me say this before. The first is that God is great. And the second is that God is good. And so if you were raised in a home that taught you to pray for your food as a young child, the first two things you learned to say about God are actually the outline for all that God is. God is great and God is good. His greatness is around his righteousness and his awesome power, his omniscience. That means he knows everything. His omnipotence, he's all-powerful. His omnipresence, he is everywhere. It's the God who is the righteous judge who calls creation to account. All that is true of God. If that's our only view of God, then we're Westboro Baptist Church. We're always living in fear and we're always seeing ourselves. Uh, to follow God is to be a condemning judge right along with him. And we can overplay that, but you must include that in your relationship with God. Because without that, your love for God and his love for you is cheap love. There's no awe and wonder and mystery that it's that God that we can call Abba. He is great, but he's also good. Those characteristics are the ones that we're most attracted to. He is perfectly holy. He is good to his core. He always acts correctly, righteously. It's about his love and his compassion and his mercy. And that's the part of God that we want to focus on exclusively. So when we hear this statement that the God of the universe has an indictment against his people, it's uncomfortable for us. We tend to think of that part of God as being expressed towards people out there, you know, the bad people. Those are the people God judges. And so when God uses that language with us, we should sit up and take notice. What is it that God is charging his people with here? So he goes on and he lays the foundation for his accusation by reminding Israel of his mercy towards them. That's verses three through five. He says, remember all that I've done for you. And he begins with the reminder that he brought them up out of Egypt. You, you may or may not know that story, but Israel was in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. And they were, and this is important to understand as we're working towards a definition of mercy, they were completely helpless to deliver themselves. And God acted to do for them what they could not do for themselves and freed them from their oppressors. Let's ask that question, what is mercy? And I'm going to define it by making three points that together make a single statement. So if you're taking notes, this is important to get down. Mercy, first of all, is part of God's character. It's related to his love and his compassion that moves him to do for humankind what we cannot do for ourselves. Mercy is why God acts out of his goodness. Without mercy, love and compassion is just affection and sentimentality. It means nothing. I'll just be very clear. God wants every one of his children to demonstrate his mercy to the world around them. And if you're not actively doing that, if you're not acting on behalf of those who cannot help themselves, 
without judgment, just because mercy and the love of God compels us. If you are not doing that, then what you call love and compassion is powerless. And it's ultimately meaningless. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's mercy. God incarnate. If you ever want to know how to live out the balance of following and worshiping and speaking on behalf of a holy God, but also reaching out in love to lost people, you only have to look at Jesus. Watch Jesus. You'll get a lesson on what it means to act both righteously with mercy. Jesus, his whole life, carried on what we would call a ministry of mercy. The Gospels are full of stories of Jesus helping people who were incapable of helping themselves. Whether it was a leper, or a blind man, or a woman caught in adultery, or even those who never asked for his mercy, the demon-possessed. How often in the Gospels do we hear people crying out, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy. And he did, over and over again. You want to understand what it means to be God's instrument of mercy, even as we stand for what is right? Look at Jesus. Because your calling as a Christian is not to be God the Father. God is the righteous judge. It is His job to judge. Our job is to be Jesus to the world. To be the voice of God's mercy so that people can avoid God's judgment. That's our mission. We're Christ followers. We are His hands and feet. And that is to be demonstrated in how we interact with those who are incapable of helping themselves. Now, Christ's ultimate demonstration of mercy was on the cross when he gave his life for our sins and accomplished the ultimate thing that you and I were helpless to do on our own, and that is to bring us back to relationship with God. We see the gospel through the lens of God's mercy in Ephesians 2. Say this with me. Because of his great love for us, God who is, say it loudly, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. That's only possible because of God's mercy. If he did not act towards you in your helplessness, you would never be sitting here today as his child. Peter puts it this way. Say it with me. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We, like the children of Israel, need to be reminded that we were once in a helpless place. And the only reason we are where we are today in relationship with God is because of his immense and powerful mercy. That is the context now for the indictment that he makes on his Old Testament people, talking about the uselessness of their religious practices in the absence of mercy. Verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord, you may ask, and bow down before the exalted God? Now the first few things he's going to talk about are the true and right things that the people of God brought to the Lord in worship. 
Shall I come before him with a burnt offering, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, even 10,000 rivers of olive oil? And the answer for a, a Jewish person would have been, well, yeah, that, that's, what we, that's what we come before the Lord with. What if I offer my own child to God, the fruit of my own body for my sins? Now, here is the state of affairs with Israel at this point. Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah. They are prophesying in Judah, the lower kingdom, the northern kingdom is gone, and they are about to also experience God's judgment. So Micah's talking about this, and what has happened is that their lives have drifted far away from God. They are not living as God's people, but they're still worshiping. But here's what happens when you do worship and your life doesn't match. If you're not worshiping God and honoring and glorifying Him in your day-to-day, when you come to worship eventually, it lacks. You, you know there's not a connection. And I want to tell you, that's your fault. It's not about the quality of the musicianship or the style And by the way, they were great today, weren't they? It's not about that, though. For instance, you can't be living in a state of adultery and show up here and think you're honestly experiencing God. You can't have cheated on your taxes in the last couple weeks. You see, if our lives don't match, then ultimately our worship doesn't reach. And then we start looking for other experiences rather than looking at our own lives. We try out another church, or we we try out even fringe ideas of religion that lead us away from true worship. And that's what happened to Israel. They began to pursue idolatry and mysticism, and some even to the point where they did offer their children to the god Molech. That's the path down which we go when our lives don't match our ritual. Because ultimately, what God has done in his mercy towards us is not to show us religion. Religious practices are just tools. What God has done in his mercy is to bring us into a relationship. Isaiah speaks about this exact same issue in Isaiah chapter 58. Let's turn there. Verse 1. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. But they say, why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? They're coming to worship as though God should show up and he's not. And they don't see that the problem isn't God. It's not the worship rituals. It's them going on. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. 
Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? So here we are in two passages, both laying the same charge. Here's the point. We can be practicing all the right rituals and worship as God's people, and it can be completely meaningless to both us and God. And when this happens, our condition will worsen. We will seek after other religious or even non-religious practices to bring that meaning that we are seeking. And the reality is, without doing personal surgery in our hearts and our lives, we're only moving farther and farther away from God. So God makes the, the challenge to his people. Let's look at it back on the screen here. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what is it that the Lord requires of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. He's saying, go back to what you already know. This is not new or unknown to us. It has just been ignored by us. The Lord requires more than extravagant acts of worship. He requires that we remember and honor the mercy He has shown us by showing that mercy to others. And this, according to this verse, requires a humbling of ourselves, remembering that God acted for us in our helplessness, showing us mercy. Now, Isaiah 58. Here's how Isaiah addresses it. Verse 5. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in the sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Now he goes on. Is not this the true kind of fasting I have chosen? Listen to what he's going to say. It has nothing to do with religious practice and ritual. This is God's idea of true fasting. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear to you. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. Then you will cry for help, and He will say, Here am I. Are you getting the point here? There is no such thing as meaningful lives of worship that don't lead us to meaningful ministries of mercy in the name of the one that we worship. I believe this principle is true. God will always indict His people when our devotion to worship and religious tradition isn't accompanied by a life of mercy. In other words, ultimately, if you are a follower of Jesus... You are to be merciful. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. That's interesting. That's sort of like in the prayer 
that he taught us to pray, forgive as we forgive. It, it almost seems contradictory to what we just read in Ephesians, that we're not saved by doing anything. Does showing mercy trigger our receipt? What's Jesus saying here? It gets even worse when you go to James chapter 2. I hate James. Because he calls our bluff. He won't let us just claim faith if it doesn't produce fruit in our lives. He'll say, I don't believe you have faith. He says this, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy trumps judgment. What, what's the bottom line here? The ministry of mercy is to be so central to the life of a Jesus follower that the very authenticity of our relationship with Christ is brought into question when we fail to show mercy to others. Think about that. I want to say it again. Because I think that's the point here. The ministry of mercy is to be so part of the life of a Jesus follower that the very authenticity of our relationship with Christ is brought into question when we fail to show mercy to others. It is the natural response of those who humbly acknowledge their own helplessness, except for God's mercy, being shown to us. For every Christ follower, it is not enough to speak of love and compassion. We must take action to help those who cannot help themselves, both in this life and for their eternal destination. That's, how, that's why God brings a charge against his people. Ultimately, this is the message. Do you love Jesus? Do you truly love Jesus? then you must love mercy. Shame on the American culture for letting us believe that our Christian faith is about making our life work, about us being successful, about us becoming better, when it's actually the exact opposite. It's in giving ourselves up to help those who cannot in any way help themselves. And that takes humility. That's why we need to walk humbly with God so that we might do justly and fall in love with doing mercy.